and we welcome you to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg, and I'm very happy to be sitting sitting opposite uh, Nan Calvert, who uh, is paying her monthly visit to the morning show. And uh, Nan has lined up an exceptionally exciting guest for today's program and, uh, and an exceptionally interesting topic, I think, as... Uh, the nasty months of winter slowly uh, approach us. <laughs> and uh, one of the f- facets of winter involves uh, what the creatures around us do during the winter. And we're going to be talking in particular about something that a lot of us probably don't give a whole lot of thought to, namely what happens uh, to the insects around us during the winter. And for that, Nan Calvert has enlisted uh, the participation of an expert, uh, P.J. Leash is his name, and he is director of the Insect Diagnostic Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, he is UW Extension entomologist. And uh, you maybe know him as uh, the Wisconsin bug guy on Twitter, uh, <laughs> where he is able to share his expertise and answer all kinds of different questions. Uh, so, P.J. Leash, you're joining us by telephone, and are you there? I am, yes. <laughs> Great to be uh, making your acquaintance today. Nan, explain uh, how you know, I guess it's more that you know of P.J. Leash and why you wanted to uh, invite him to the program today. Well, uh, the reason I wanted to have him on is because, uh, you know, <laughs> insects are an interesting, fascinating, uh, wonderful animal, and people either love them or they are sort of repulsed by them. But either way, insects are a marvel of evolution, and uh, they don't always just die or go away in the winter. They're capable of doing some amazing things. Insects have some of the most interesting and mind-boggling adaptive capabilities, and I thought it would be really fun to talk about that. We always talk about, you know, how mammals adapt to winter. Some hibernate, others don't. We talk about birds migrating, and uh, but, you know, insects are, uh, um, insects do wonderful things, too. And, you know, a couple of segments ago, we talked about insects. We talked specifically about the rusty-patched bumblebee and the pollinator patch program uh, on which uh, UW Parkside and uh, Root Pike Watershed Initiative Network are collaborating. Um, and so it's kind of cool to talk about other insects, not just ones that necess- don't necessarily need our help like the, the rusty-patched bumblebee does. So. That's why I thought it would be cool to have PJ on. Fantastic. So, PJ, before we start exploring this subject, uh, I think it would be interesting if we got to know a little bit about the Wisconsin bug guy and, uh, in particular, uh, what drew you to this particular line of work and this sort of academic specialty. When did you first become uh, so interested in insects? Well, I would say I really started getting interested in insects when I was in high school. And, um, you know, like a lot of other high school students, you had to do some type of insect collection. And that at least piqued my interest a little bit when you start learning some of the scientific names for, for some of the larger groups, Coleoptera and Hymenoptera and, and that sort of thing. Um, but really it was when I was in college, and I'm, I'm from southeastern Wisconsin. I grew up in, in Franksville in Racine County, and I was attending UW Parkside for college. And this was back in early 2000s, right around the time that emerald ash borer was starting to hit the news. 
and we hadn't found emerald ash borer yet in the state. But as an undergrad, I worked for an entomology professor here in Madison for two summers doing some preliminary survey work to help survey ash trees in southeastern Wisconsin looking for signs of emerald ash borer. Um, so that kind of got my foot in the door at the same time I was really interested in chemistry, especially organic chemistry. And I, I read a book called Secret Weapons by a guy named Thomas Eisner, which talks about all the bizarre, quirky, amazing chemical defenses that insects have. And, and that was something that really also pointed me down the direction of entomology, just realizing they were so cool and, and so fascinating. Uh, so I did these two years or two summers of serving for emerald ash borer in southeastern Wisconsin and a few other spots in the state and uh, was asked if I was interested in graduate work. And so I came to Madison uh, in June of 2007, uh, and I've been around here ever since. Very good. I wonder if you, as you explored this, if you had any idea just how wide and how deep this field of study, in fact, is. I mean, growing up in uh, farm country, I spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid. Um, you know, my summers were full of trying to catch toads and frogs and salamanders and that sort of thing. And, of course, fireflies and, you know, whatever other insects I would find. So I, I had uh, some kind of inkling of the diversity that was out there. But then it was really as I began to study entomology seriously that uh, my eyes were kind of open at just how mind-bogglingly diverse this group can be. If you think about insects, just in Wisconsin alone, we have at least 20,000 different species, if not maybe upwards of 25,000 or so. So there's no shortage of things to study um, at the Insect Diagnostic Lab here in Madison where I help identify insects for people. I'm bumping into things that I've never seen before on a fairly regular basis. So it, it's just a, a very fun field of study. And I like to tell folks if you're interested in birds and, and you put your mind to it, you can probably learn all of Wisconsin's birds within a year or two in terms of how to identify them by sight and song and that sort of thing. With insects, you could have 10 lifetimes and you just wouldn't even get close because there's so many different insects out there. And you go elsewhere around the planet, we know of at least a million different species of insects. So it, it, it truly is mind-boggling when you think of the diversity of what's out there. Right. You know, as you're describing your your uh, initial fascination with insects, I'm reminded of, uh, I can still picture it clear as day, uh, back in, it was either fifth grade or sixth grade, but opening up a science book and seeing all of the, uh, would it be the orders, Hymenoptera and Lepidoptera and all of that, uh, of, of insects and these different illustrations and just being amazed. And there was this distinctiveness between these different kinds of insects and yet of course they all share something together but I, I can still kind of recall that that visceral fascination with these creatures that are so different from us and yet are all around us and uh, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that someone would find themselves drawn to make it their life's work to uh, study them as you have. Oh definitely. Tell us a little more uh, about this insect diagnostic lab. I wondered what that term really represented. It sounds like, as you said, you are mostly in the business of insect ID. <laughs> Tell us more yes. about uh, exactly 
how you do what you do with the insect diagnostic lab? Sure. So the the insect diagnostic lab, it's uh, housed here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but it it really is a lab with statewide um, reach. And and the focus of the lab, which was established back in the late 70s, uh, has been to help identify insects for colleagues in the State Extension Service, but also help uh, identify insects for farmers and private industry, um, you know, the green industry, for example, tree care and lawn care um, and plant care, that sort of thing. Um, Sometimes I assist uh, medical professionals with cases where they may be suspicious of insects or or they found insects in association with a client and they're trying to figure out if there's bites going on or that sort of thing. Um, And a big chunk of the pie is just the general public. So essentially, in a nutshell, what I do is I help identify insects for folks around the state of Wisconsin. And and sometimes I do get requests from outside of the state. Uh, In a given year, I might get uh, identification requests uh, from maybe 20 to 30 different U.S. states and uh, about a dozen or so international countries. So I, I get to live a little bit vicariously through some of those cases. Wow. It's interesting. It it. I would almost think that uh, in this day and age where people can seek out and secure information with a whole lot less effort than was once the case, uh, that a a place like the Insect Diagnostic Lab would not be kept nearly as busy as it once was, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago. But it sounds like there are plenty of people who still need your help, who can't just go to our friend Google uh, to get the to the answers that they're 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 looking for, right? And, and I mean that brings up a very interesting topic. And there are these days. I mean, there seems to be an app for just about everything. Uh, and there are some some very good apps out there. And uh, you know, with computer learning and identification of images and things like that, um, for certain groups of insects. You know, you can sometimes snap an image and and get a pretty darn good or or very accurate um, identification. That would include many of our larger, kind of flashier insects. Think of of butterflies, for example. Butterflies, if you think about it, they're almost a two-dimensional thing. They're they're practically flat when they have their wings out. Um, And and dragonflies are somewhat similar um, in that regard. They're large. They're often somewhat flashy. And so there are some um, smartphone apps and and websites and things like that that can help identify some of those insects. But when you start looking at a lot of our insects, we're talking about things that are really quite small. I mean, a lot of insects that I see and work with are a quarter inch or less. So little brownish beetles that are an eighth of an inch long, and you just can't identify those with a picture. If you had photos that were taken under the microscope so you can see some of the key features, um, then maybe. Um, But otherwise, you really need to get a specimen under the microscope. So even though the lab was started in about 1978, if I remember correctly, um, in terms of the caseload we're seeing on an annual basis, some of the busiest years the lab has ever seen have been just in the last five years or so. So it's still very, very relevant and very widely used service. Wow. So people are grabbing bugs or beetles or whatever it might be and uh, putting them into an envelope of some kind and sending them off to you for you to provide identification. Well, in um, some cases, yes. Um, 
it's been interesting over the course of history of the lab um, with the invention of digital imaging technology. Um, back in the day, the lab saw a lot more physical samples where folks would be you know, putting specimens into a, a little container to protect it and, and shipping it in the mail. Um, these days, most folks have smartphones. And if you have a smartphone, you have an 8 or 10 or 12 megapixel camera, and you can snap some pretty good pictures. And often that's good enough to get an identification in many cases, or that can at least be a good starting point. Um, you know, I get a lot of requests, for example, folks maybe stay in a hotel somewhere while they're traveling, and they want to know, was this a bed bug that they found? No. And maybe I get a, a picture, and you can't quite tell what it is for sure, but you can tell with uh, you know enough certainty that it's not a bed bug, and so that can be kind of you know uh, a sigh of relief for them, um, knowing that they didn't bump into a bed bug. So these days, actually, about 60 or so percent of the cases that I handle at the diagnostic lab are actually digital images, or they involve digital images at at some point initially, and then specimens might be sent in. Hmm. And once in a while, you are stumped. It's, I think you said you at least hinted at that possibility that once in a while something comes in and it is something you have never seen before. Right, yeah. So that does happen on a fairly regular basis where it may just be a particular species that I haven't personally encountered before. There are other cases where I just don't get enough clues to figure out what's going on. Um, and, and basically, if I have a, an insect, a specimen, or uh, digital images of it, I need to basically know when and where it was found is, is kind of the minimal clues. Additionally, what was it doing, any unusual behavior and that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes I do get images in my email where there's essentially none of that information provided. And so those types of cases, and especially if the image is uh, kind of blurry, um, it, sometimes it just isn't feasible to narrow down what, what the particular creature is. For those of you just joining us, uh, I'm speaking today on the morning show in studio with Nan Calvert and via the telephone with P.J. Leash, who is director of the Insect Diagnostic Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and UW Extension entomologist, Wisconsin's bug guy on Twitter. And he is with us today on the morning show. And now we are going to uh, turn our attention to uh, kind of the central question uh, for this program today, namely... How do the insects of Wisconsin survive uh, winter in Wisconsin? And, of course, Wisconsin winters can be brutal for man and beast alike. And uh, so that's a question that we're going to be uh, exploring for the next few minutes. What are the means by which uh, insects manage to survive winter, those that do survive? Maybe that's a good place for us to start, P.J. Leash. Uh, what proportion of Wisconsin's insect population survives the winter versus those that uh, that essentially are are killed as things get cold yes yeah, so that's a good question I would say the the vast majority of Wisconsin insects do make it through the winter they have a, a lot of different strategies to go about doing that but if you think about it for our, our 20,000 or so insect species in Wisconsin you know, they have been here for a very, very long time. So when we get a polar vortex like we did last winter, it's not the first time those species have encountered it. Um, so they've been dealing with this for a long time. They're very well adapted to our area and our conditions. And so the vast majority of those, I feel, are going to be making it through the winter one way or another. Hmm. 
one thing, one distinction that, that Nan drew that I appreciated is that when we think about, for instance, birds, we think of at least many birds migrating to places that are warmer, although, of course, some birds do stick around all the way through the winter, but, of course, some migrate uh, to the south. Um, what about insects? Of course, we hear, for instance, about the migration of, of monarch butterflies. Uh, what kind of migration patterns do we see with, with insects? And are there insects besides butterflies that engage in migration? Yeah, so in the grand scheme of things, you're absolutely right. We do have certain insects that migrate, uh, and, and the monarch butterfly is perhaps the best example. We all know they you know, leave the, the Great Lakes region, and they head down to Mexico, which takes them you know, weeks, if, if not uh, months, to get down there, and then they're going to hunker down for the winter. So they have a trek of a uh, couple thousand miles to get there. So that's one good example. Um, some other butterflies kind of do that to a certain extent. Uh, a good example would be painted lady butterflies, which come out of, of some of the southern and southwestern states, and they migrate up here in the spring, and we see them around Wisconsin for most of the summer. Um, and then they may try migrating a, a little bit, but it doesn't seem to be nearly as coordinated as uh, with a monarch. So a lot of those probably, I suspect, get killed off by the frost. But another good example of a, a true migratory species is actually a type of dragonfly called the, the common green darner Annex junius. And this is one of our largest dragonflies um, that we see, um, very distinctive green uh, and blue on the body. Um, and this one actually travels uh, uh, just like the monarch uh, north and south across the U.S. Um, so those would be some good examples. But then we have lots of insects that essentially have one-way migrations. Um, they, they move up here in the spring, and we have a lot of examples, even of some of our important crop pests that do this. They may survive the winter in the Gulf Coast states, and then in the spring, um, they either migrate up deliberately or, uh, in a lot of cases, they're probably getting caught in the jet stream and storm fronts, and they get blown up here. And then they're, they're going through a couple generations up in the upper Midwest, and then fall comes and, and they freeze out, and next year we see the same thing again. So uh, there are lots of insects that, that make these migrations, many of them kind of more of a one-way trip. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, the migration uh, isn't particularly common. Um, I, I think we have a lot more species that simply kind of hunker down and, and make it through our winters. Hmm. And we'll explore that in just a second. I should think that... Uh, it's a little tricky to track, for instance, the migration of insects. It's tricky enough to track that when it comes to things like birds, but I would guess that tracking that for insects uh, is even a trickier matter, uh, just given just the size of insects and kind of the indeterminate nature of which bug is which. Uh, am, am I right? Is it a, it a tricky thing to uh, explore and, 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 in a sense, quantify? It, it is. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and we know with birds, you can bur uh, put bands on them and, you know, use radio telemetry and things like that and figure out where they're going. With insects, it, it's very, very difficult to do that because if you were to try and put a radio tracker on an individual insect, that's 
going to be pretty heavy compared to their body weight. So that's not really as doable. With monarchs, for example, um, some of this work was done back in the uh, the 70s when they really figured out where monarchs were going to. They were using uh, stickers, and, and this is still done today. You can put a little sticker on uh, and tag the monarch's wings, and that will have a unique number code on there. And there are websites and research projects that do this. And so over time, um, basically putting pins on a map, um, you could put a sticker on a monarch in Wisconsin or, or elsewhere in the eastern U.S. And then if someone else found it, say in Texas, you could put arrows on the map and, and figure out where those monarchs were going. And so that's essentially how they eventually figured out that uh, the monarchs made it to Mexico. For some of the other insects, though, it, it's very difficult. For this green darner dragonfly that I mentioned, it was really just within the last year or two that the scientists published a paper that definitively had shown what they do with their migration and going through these three generations per year, a northward, a southward, and then kind of a localized one in parts of the southern U.S. So uh, it can be very, very difficult to study the, the movement of insects. Fascinating. Let's uh, talk for a moment now about uh, those Wisconsin insects that, in your words, hunker down. <laughs> and I suppose that's one of the things we need to kind of take apart here is that process of hunkering down. And we know what that means for us. Uh, but what does that mean for insects? How does an insect hunker down in order to survive a Wisconsin winter? Yeah, so this is going to vary kind of species to species, depending on the insect. And, and when you look at all our insects across the spectrum, um, each is going to have a slightly different tolerance in terms of how cold they can get before it has a, a really negative impact or, or kills them outright. We have certain insects, for example, that we see regularly around our homes during the winter months. Think of things like box elder bugs, uh, multicolored Asian lady beetles, western conifer seed bugs, brown marmorate stink bugs, and there's some other ones uh, as well. These are insects that um, can't tolerate the cold particularly well, and so they specifically in fall, around this time of the year, they seek out shelter. Um, and out in nature, that might be uh, beneath the loose bark of a, a standing dead tree. But with all the homes and other structures around, a lot of these insects like to sneak into buildings. Well, if the building is warm enough for us for the winter months, and if these insects are sneaking into an insulated attic area or a place like that, they are in really a pretty protected spot. So even if there's a polar vortex and it's minus 20, minus 30 outside, where they are kind of hunkered down for the winter, it might be right around freezing or so, and which is much more tolerable from their point of view. Uh, so there's insects that uh, simply like human structures and like to get in. Uh, we have many, many other insects, though, that uh, will go for more natural spots. So if you were to think of things like uh, the the new fertilized queens of bumblebees uh, or yellow jackets. So these are females that will be initiating nests next year. They do the same kind of thing. They're looking for sheltered natural spots, though. Um, this could be inside of uh, a rotten log or beneath the bark of a loose tree or a rock pile or a pile of leaves or compost pile or loose soil or something like that. So again, they're getting to these areas where there's going to be some insulation factor. Um, and then if snow falls on top of them uh, of, and further insulates it, that's going to pretty well protect them from the coldest temperatures that we may be experiencing. Hmm. What would be some of the 
differences species to species in terms of what kind of cold a given insect can tolerate. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that certain insects can can tolerate a, a certain level of cold that would kill other insects. And, and if indeed there is that variation in terms of tolerance of cold, uh, what would be the reason for that difference? What would be in a, maybe the structural difference between uh, given insect species that would, would account for that kind of difference? Mm-hmm. Well, so what comes to mind first when you, you brought that up, um, for example, we have a lot of insects that um, can be found indoors. Um, these are insects that maybe will infest food items. Um, and over the course of human history, some of these insects, tiny flower beetles and Indian meal moths and things like that have essentially been moved around the globe with human trait, movement of grain and and other um, food commodities, essentially. And a lot of these insects aren't very tolerant of cold. If you had them in a bag of flour, for example, um, and you froze that bag of flour, um, even at, you know, not a terribly cold temperature down in the 20s and you do it long enough, it's most likely going to kill them. Um, So we have some insects that aren't particularly freeze tolerant, and a lot of those are either living uh, with us um, in in, uh, Wisconsin outdoors, they probably wouldn't survive, but indoors they can, whereas down in the tropics or or warmer regions, they could survive year-round. But then we have some of our other insects that are are outdoors that can really survive some very, very cold temperatures. We even have certain insects and other arthropods that can be active during the winter months outdoors, which is kind of mind-boggling if you think of it. But, uh, I mean, some of the temperatures these things can withstand, we're talking down in the range of, of minus 20 to minus 30 for some of these species. Wow. And would that be... When a, when a given species can tolerate cold, is it generally speaking because they have, in a sense, kind of like a thick shell or something other or some other sort of aspect of their of their body that makes them tolerant to cold or is or is that a bit of a mystery? Well, um, this has been fairly well studied for quite a few different insects, and and there's really a lot of different things that can be going on. Um, First off, if you have a a given species of insect, let's say it's a caterpillar, and and with complete metamorphosis, you're going to have four different life stages. You're going to have the egg, Mm. you're going to have the caterpillar larval stage, that cocoon or pupil stage, and then the adult moth or butterfly. And it may be that only one of those particular life stages can actually survive the winter. And so maybe the adult moth is killed off, um, and maybe the the pupa would be killed off, but the caterpillar stage, for example, can withstand the the cold temperature. So for each species, the life stage that they make it through is going to have a big influence on it. Um, And one thing that insects can do, they can enter a kind of state of suspended animation if you will, Mm. called diapause. And this is basically um, a condition that is very resistant to extreme uh, uh, conditions uh, in the environment, and they slow down their metabolism to the point that they can be very, very tolerant of cold temperatures in some cases. So that's one trick that insects have up their sleeves is, is kind of picking the right 
life stage to go through the winter in um, because that can make a really big difference. But then they have some other things that they can do. A lot of insects uh, essentially create their own antifreeze compounds or cryoprotectants. So they make these chemicals in their body that make them more uh, resistant to freezing. They can do some other tricks with super cooling where they actually cool down below the freezing point, but the ice doesn't crystallize yet. Um, they can do some cool things with changing the balance of water. Uh, and basically, if you get rid of some of your water and allow yourself to be dehydrated, what water you have left in your body is going to be in cells that are, are more concentrated with salts and, and other um, uh, organic compounds, <laughs> and that's going to make it harder to freeze. So really, there's a lot of different tricks that insects have to prevent themselves from freezing. PJ, could you give us some examples of the kinds of species that can do that, particularly with the ones that, um, you know, can uh, produce sort of a, um, a chemical that keeps them from freezing? Yeah, so a great example of that, and this is one that just about any listener would recognize. These are the woolly bear caterpillars, the ones that are very, very fuzzy, um, very charismatic, the, the black with brown banding on the body. Um, and they do a couple cool things. First of all, they produce um, some compounds that act as antifreeze. So again, they've got these cryoprotectants. Um, one other really bizarre thing that these woolly bear caterpillars do is they actually allow themselves to freeze, which would sound like a lethal choice. Um, because generally, if you think about it, if you have ice that free or water that freezes and turns to ice inside of a cell, it's probably going to form crystals that are going to burst that cell and that cell is going to be dead. Um, so for an insect to freeze solid, intuitively, that sounds like a really, really bad plan. What the woolly bear caterpillars do, though, is they regulate the ice formation process. And because they regulate it, they can essentially dictate where the ice is going to form within their bodies. And the key when this happens, and this is true of a lot of insects, is we need very gradual cooling off. If we had insects at 80 degrees and threw them in a freezer overnight, that's going to be really, really hard on them and a shock to their system. But with Wisconsin weather, if they're cooling off gradually in the fall uh, over the course of, of weeks or months, they become adapted to it um, and they're producing some of those antifreeze compounds. And so as it's getting colder and colder, what these woolly bear caterpillars do is rather than allowing the ice to form within their cells, they draw the water out of the cells. And as they start to freeze, it draws additional water out of the cells. So they're basically dehydrating themselves, allowing themselves to freeze solid. And then when they warm up, it's as if it never happened. They pop back to life. But again, it, one of the key things there is it's a very, very gradual cooling of the insect that allows them to survive this. So, you know, periodically, uh, you find woolly bear caterpillars sort of out in the open. They're curled up tightly, and they appear to be dead, but they're, they may not be. In other words, they've, they've already dehydrated. They've regulated this ice-forming process. So don't just assume they're deceased and sort of discard them. They might be very much alive. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and that's something that, um, you know, a lot of folks will see these maybe during late fall or, um, you know, even during the winter months, you might bump into one in your garage and you think, gosh, this creature's got to be chilly. I should bring it in and warm it up. But that's actually probably something that would hurt them in the long run. 
because they might become active. They only have so much energy stored in their body. So now if they're warm and active and they're moving, they're burning through those calories they have stored up in fat bodies, and that may be kind of the end of them. So some of these insects are really well adapted And with the Wisconsin seasons, they really do need to go through a cold period for them to develop properly physiologically. You know, it's fascinating. You know, as you say, you see woolly bear caterpillars all the time, and uh, people are enamored of them because they're cute and fuzzy. And you don't, looking at them, you don't realize that they can perform these amazing feats of survival. It's just, it's sort of um, amazing, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah, and and one of the books that happened, I'm really fond of, um, that I happen to like, uh, that discusses this and a a lot of the other insects uh, in detail in terms of how they make it through the winter um, is by a scientist named Bernd Heinrich, and he has a book called Winter World, where he discusses how all sorts of, of creatures make it through the winter, mammals and birds and that sort of thing. But he has some really good discussion, and one of his stories in there about the woolly bear, he talks about actually taking them and putting them in the freezer and figuring out that, you know, they're frozen solid. He could almost tap them on the table, that sort of thing. And yet he takes them out, and they warm up, and they start moving again. So it it really is amazing what the insects can do. Generally speaking, some of these amazing uh, feats with with insects surviving winter— Uh, How have they been observed by scientists? I mean, in the wild, or is it more likely under conditions in a laboratory that, uh, that some of these behaviors have been observed and more closely and carefully studied? I think it's some of both. Uh, For some of the experiments, really the only way to do it is in a laboratory. Uh, So, for example, they can figure out uh, the super cooling point for various insect species. That's the the point that you can get them down cold enough before they they truly freeze. Um, And when they do freeze, it's kind of instantaneous almost um, with the super cooling phenomenon. So uh, some of the insects that have been studied very well in the laboratory, a good example of that would be like emerald ash borer because emerald ash borer is so uh, economically important and environmentally important. And with the polar vortices, we've seen now two spells, you know, five years apart in the last decade or so. Folks really wanted to know, you know, how cold could the emerald ash borer larvae get before they truly die? And the only way to really do that under controlled conditions was to bring larvae into a laboratory and put them at, at cold temperatures and see at what point they actually freeze. And, and this has been done for other insects as well. So I think we have uh, uh, components of both. Sometimes you need to do stuff in the lab because you need to control the conditions. There's other cases where um, it, it's based on field observations. Hmm. I have a couple of follow-ups, but first I want to give you a chance to talk about any other interesting insect strategies for surviving winter, uh, if there uh, are any that we haven't really touched on yet. Well, so two other things I would mention, and and I mentioned one of these briefly, but there are certain creatures that are actually active during the winter. And and they're using some of the same tricks we've already talked about, dehydrating their cells or kind of desiccating to a certain extent, um, using antifreeze compounds and and that sort of thing. But we have uh, quite a few different creatures that can be active on on winter days. Now, if it's, uh, you know, just a blistery cold winter day, if it's, you know, minus 10, you're not going to find these creatures. But if it's a mild winter day, maybe you're cross-country skiing outdoors and it's 25 and sunny, 
or 30 degrees and sunny, um, that's when you can bump into these. So there are um, what folks call uh, snow fleas. These are actually springtails or an insect-like creature. There are certain spiders that I've seen active out on the snow. There are wingless flies. There are winter scorpion flies. I mean, there's really a, a pretty long list of things that you mm. can find on the snow if you go out looking for them on a very mild winter day. So just because it's cold doesn't mean there uh, are things that aren't active. Um, and if you go to the extreme in this regard, there's actually uh, an insect that lives on Antarctica. Uh, it's a type of, of midge or a type of fly, and it's active during the Antarctic summer for a very short period, but it can withstand some very, very cold temperatures. So that, that's one cool thing about insects is some actually can remain active during cold periods. One other strategy I'd like to mention, um, and this is used very specifically by honeybees, um, but this is the stay warm and stay active approach. And so what honeybees do is they will overwinter together as the colony, and uh, as a colony over the course of the summer and fall, they have stored up enough food as honey, uh, and then they consume that as a fuel source to generate heat. So the honeybees are actually um, consuming the food, and then they sit there and they kind of have a dance party, if you will. They uh, will literally form a, a ball um, and vibrate and, and shiver, and that's going to generate heat, and they're going to keep it upwards of 90-ish degrees or so inside their hive. Um, and if they get too warm in the center of the ball, they kind of migrate to the outside of the ball and, and circulate. So they are, are staying active and staying warm all winter long, which um, really surprises folks when they hear that, that, that insects can keep themselves warm like that. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh what kind of issue is it for insects and for these strategies when we have winters in which there is wide and sometimes abrupt variance in temperature, uh, where, where, where winter does not uh, sort of uh, enter as it typically does and doesn't leave as it does and, and, and stay cold fairly consistently? Uh, what kind of difficulty does that pose to the typical insect uh, when it is a winter full of surprises and abrupt changes, as seems to be the case uh, fairly often these days? All right, yeah. So it's going to depend on the insect species. Um, if you are, for example, insects that are spending the winter down in the soil, and maybe we get a, a few days or a week in January where it warms up and you know, maybe it hits 50 degrees or something like that, which really isn't unheard of for these weird weather swings to happen. But if you're in a, a location like that, where even though the air temperature might be 50 degrees, where you are, it's still pretty cool and, and really hasn't changed a whole lot, that isn't going to have much of a, an impact on you in the grand scheme of things. Um, if you are more of in an exposed habitat, like maybe just under the bark of a, a standing dead tree, and it gets up to be 50 degrees, you might become active again. Um, but a lot of the insects that do that, if it cools off again, they just kind of become lethargic and, and they go back to hunkering down. So uh, it does happen. But again, uh, as I said towards the beginning of the show, We've got 20 or so thousand uh, insect species in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and they've been here for thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, they're really well adapted to our conditions, so they can deal with uh, some of these temperature fluctuations pretty well, I feel. Wow. Any other questions, Nan, related to winter and wintering and hunkering and so on? <laughs> 
actually, no, I, I have just a, a general question about arachnids, if you don't <laughs> mind. Uh, sure. Is it true that we have a type of uh, tarantula here in Wisconsin? Not that I am aware of. Um, the the true tarantulas I'm thinking of more of the the southwestern states and some of the south central states. I mean, you get into places like Colorado has uh, some tarantulas that make it into the news every once in a while. I'm not aware of any up here. We do have some other uh, large spiders that folks might even you know think are approaching the size of tarantulas. Some of our fishing spiders, mm-hmm. for example, their yes. leg span can be three-ish inches or so. Um, but I'm not aware of any true tarantulas in our area. And what about termites? So termites are, are interesting. Uh, if you go south of us, termites can be really uh, a much more common and, and a regular thing. We do technically have termites in Wisconsin. Um, we have one species that we do see. It's the eastern subterranean termite. Um, it's in Wisconsin. It, it's been in Wisconsin for quite a while. Um, we don't see that many of them, though. Um, I, I don't see that many cases per year. Basically, if you looked at a map of Wisconsin, there are isolated pockets of termite activity. So uh, some cities on the map have a history of activity, uh, like Janesville, for example, and, and Beloit area. Uh, La Crosse area has some. We have some here in, in Madison area in Dane County. But it, it's really kind of pins on a map in terms of their distribution. So very, very uh, isolated and restricted in terms of where they're found. So when I think of termites in Wisconsin, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that most Wisconsinites will probably go their entire lives without Mm -hmm. having termites in their house compared to the southern states. But we do technically have them here, and they do occur in these isolated pockets. Excellent. That's good news. (laughs) (laughs) My last question for you, PJ Leash, is that uh, some insects are lovely and of great benefit to us. And, of course, some insects we are can more correctly uh, uh, label as pests. And, uh, and of course, there are terrible ways to uh, get rid of our pests and, and much better ways to get rid of our pests. Can you just give us some general advice on uh, what we should be thinking about and, and, in particular, what we should not do with those insects that, in one way or another, are, 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 are not a pleasant enhancement to our lives, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Sure. Well, when it comes to to pest management and dealing with insect pests and and other pests, I always stress the most important thing that you need to do first is really make sure you know what you're dealing with. Otherwise, you know, you may see an insect um, on plants in your garden, for example, and it may be a, a beneficial insect, but if you don't recognize what it is and you assume it's a pest, you might go out and use a, a pesticide against something where it's completely unnecessary. So getting an insect identified and, and knowing what it is, that's perhaps the most important step. Once you know what an insect is, then it's very easy to look up and, and read up about it and learn what is it going to do. Maybe it's an insect that in the grand scheme of things is going to be such a minor pest and it's going to cause such minimal damage to your plants that it might be easier to do nothing because it, it's really a kind of inconsequential and it's not going to cause much, if any, harm at all. Um, if it is something that is deemed an actual pest, you know, you, you can understand then the biology. If you know that this is a seasonal pest and it's going to be done at the end of the month, essentially, and it's, you know, 
two days before the end of the month, then it might not make a whole lot of sense to do anything about it. But if you know it's an insect like, let's use Japanese beetle as an example, because that bothers all kinds of gardeners in the state, but maybe it's July 5th and you're seeing Japanese beetles and you start reading about what it is and you know they're going to be active from early July for the next two to three months, well, then that's a little bit different case. You know that it's going to be around for a long time causing damage to your plants, and so you might need to do something about it. So I think that's the most important thing. Know what you're dealing with, and then you can read about its biology and life cycle, because if you understand kind of the weak point in their life cycle, that gives you a, an easier way to go about kind of attacking them if you need to. B.J. Leash is director of the Insect Diagnostic Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and UW Extension Entomologist, and you can follow him on Twitter as the Wisconsin Bug Guy. P.J. Leash, it's been great to speak with you. I so appreciate uh, you taking the time to join Nan and I on today's morning show. Very best wishes to you and uh, all of your colleagues and the important work that you do. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Nan, go ahead and uh, give us some calendar uh, events, if you would, to finish out. Certainly. As usual, there are a lot of really interesting things going on. We'll start out with Pringle Nature Center. On Friday, October 25th, Pringle will celebrate Halloween with its candlelight Halloween hank hike <laughs> from 6 to 8 p.m. It's a self-guided hike, and there will be hot cocoa at the Nature Center at the end. You must register at $6 for the general public and $4.50 for Friends of Pringle Nature Center. Then on October 26th, Bong State Recreation Area will host a, a really fascinating presentation by the esteemed DNR biologist Marty Johnson called Beavers in Wisconsin. And Marty will discuss the ways in which beavers helped shape Wisconsin's history and habitats. You'll discover how perfectly adapted beavers are and the ways you can live with a beaver neighbor. Uh, then you'll go out into the field and hike to a beaver home and you should be prepared to drive. That occurs on October 26th from 2 to 3 p.m. Not to be outdone, on November 7th, Hoy Audubon at 7 p.m. will present Tracking Wolves in Wisconsin. Larry and Emily Scheunemann are the guest experts with over 20 years of experience as trackers for the DNR. They'll give an overview of the history of wolves in Wisconsin and the research uh, and the techniques used to research the wolves and the current challenges they will be facing uh, are included in the presentation. The location is at Trefoil Oaks Program Center. Mm. Uh, and next, and finally for today, <laughs> uh, on November 16th from 9 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. at the Racine Dominican Eco Justice Center, they will present needle felting. You'll learn the artful craft of needle felting. Participants will make two felted pieces, one flat and one two-dimensional. The cost is $60, and it includes lunch and all of the materials you need, and you need to register by November 8th. All right. Very good. Lots going on. <laughs> Lots and, going on. And I'm so glad you invited uh, PJ Leash to join us. That was a fascinating conversation. It really was fascinating. And I hope if you're one of those people who is sort of creeped out by bugs, I hope you have a, a new appreciation of them. They really are so beneficial to us and they make life possible on Earth. They also make life difficult on Earth sometimes. <laughs> it depends on the it bug, doesn't it? It depends on the bug, yes, <laughs> right. it does. Well, it was a great conversation, so uh, thanks for uh, making it possible, Nan, and we look forward to seeing you uh, very, very soon. Yes, it'll be very soon. All right, take care. <laughs> Thank you.